the numbers are going round, which means I'm recording. So off we go. Um, March was quite productive, um, but we'll start off with well, an update on my back. Um, it's not too bad. It's improved in the last couple of weeks, which means that it's going in the right direction. I think there's a bit of time still to go before I can start running again, but otherwise it's going okay. It's just a long process. I've just got to get used to this. Um, I went and, well, I went and injured it at the end of January. So at the moment it's just over I think it'll be roughly about nine weeks something like that and according to all of the bump that I've read about it uh, in various different places online it'd be around about three months but it can be longer than that to get totally right so I'm in no rush I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to get running by May but who knows I mean on the upside it has meant that I've been quite productive when it comes to producing the books and things. Most of them are about 75% finished. Uh, there's basically just text to do. Um, and we might as well mention the books while we, we're on it now. Um, there is a third one coming out as well. But I'll just go through the books individually. Um... Seven Hills has had some 2015 images added to them. I can't remember whether I mentioned it in the blog or the post, but I did say that I was going to have a look through the 2015 images uh, that I shot. And I came up with three or four, which I was quite pleased with. Um, another case of going back, having a look. There was a rather nice shot that I took in Edinburgh Castle, uh, looking down near where the one o'clock gun is, which is a big artillery piece that they fire off at one o'clock quite famous uh, but there's quite there was quite a nice shot sort of like looking down into that sort of area and people mingling about and I rather like that shot and then there was a, a couple of others that I remembered from the time so altogether there'll be about four 2015 images in there which means that the book will run approximately about three and a half years from late 2015 right through to April of 2019. I go up to Edinburgh this weekend. If I can get three or four shots for the book, I will be perfectly happy. Um, so that is Seven Hills. It's it's coming on quite nicely. Not much text has been done, but it is heading in the right direction. I would, again, I would say it's about 75% complete. The introduction needs doing. Some of the uh what's the word i'm looking for some of the um captions that's the word i'm looking for some of the captions have been done and uh it's just a matter of sorting a few of the others out now the second book the two towns which is also about edinburgh has come on quite nicely as well there's not been any images added there already in it's basically a matter of getting the text and I've been having a look through some of my photography books and getting some ideas about how I want the text laid out and what to say uh, which is a difficult thing I think it's going to take a bit of time so that's coming on nicely as well and then the third publication which should be coming out within the next month is a new one and it's a photo zine it's the first photo magazine that I've 
made, uh, designed, uh, and that's all about my 2016 trip to Norfolk, which was part of that horrible year when I lost my mum and she just finished chemotherapy. They'd stopped it because her health was deteriorating at a rapid rate. Um, chemo does some horrible things uh, to the body as side effects. And basically she was in such a weak state that she couldn't really take much more. So they decided to stop and because we didn't have those appointments we decided that we were going to get away and have one last holiday with them and we went to Norfolk and these images were on my trips out um, I was taking pictures with the camera and I was also taking pictures with my iPhone and these are the iPhone pictures there's 19 of them all together I'm quite pleased with them Making this zine sort of like clears the decks of these images. It's a nice way of using photographs. It's a nice way of putting them all together somewhere. And I'm quite impressed with the title I'd have come up for the magazine as well. It's called Caught by the Tide, which basically came about from that feeling of just being swept along. There's nothing that you can really do, which is how I felt at the time. Um, up until that point, up until the September when we went to Norfolk, it was just one thing after another, and you had absolutely no control. There was nothing that you could do. Um, it was very, very frustrating, uh, heartbreaking at times. And photography, again, sort of came to the rescue. I was able to take some images, take a bit of time away. Even if it was just an hour or two hours, it was just a, a break, a bit of an escape. And these images sort of reflect that. Looking through them, when I was editing them, I realised that a lot of the images are actually... They're quite lonely in a way. Um, it's also strange that we went back to Norfolk because we'd been there many times, right from being small. I think the first time I can certainly remember going there would be about nine or ten. And of course you're going back to these places where you've had these lovely holidays and then you're going back, although it's a holiday, it's a completely sort of like different reason why you're there. So it was a bit of a bittersweet trip in a way. It was um, a very, very strange experience. But the photos came out better than I thought. They're black and white. They're in a square format. And I've just laid them out in a very, very simple, um, simple design. And again, it's just a matter of, again, the introduction done, which is about half done. And then there's going to be a little bit of detail at the back and maybe some dedications, something like that. But I'm hoping to get this out within, well, I'd like to get it out by the end of the month. But if I can't get it out by the end of the month, if I can't get it finished, then definitely May. And then first photo zine will go out. And I reckon it'll be about five or six quid to buy, something like that. It's not that long. It's only 24 pages. So it's not huge. And it'll just be interesting to see, um, you know, see how it works. Right, a bit of housekeeping, I think, from the website. Um, the first item is, well, I'll start with 
Well, the news really was just about the upcoming Norfolk photo zine, which was sort of a bit of a spur of the moment thing. I was just messing around, thought I'll just have a look at the magazine settings and within a couple of hours I'd, I'd sort of got the, the zine sorted out. Um, I'd wanted to do something with those Norfolk images anyway, so it was a good excuse. So that was one post that went on towards the end of March, but at the beginning of March... There was, on the test strip, if I can find it... Ah, oh, there we are. 7th of March, there was Creating Galleries with Block Gallery. Now, Block Gallery is a plugin, a free plugin, for self-hosted WordPress sites. Gutenberg was released for WordPress. It was added in WordPress at the end of last year. And the Block Editor enables you to, to add other blocks to increase the functionality of your editor so block gallery adds more galleries so you you have a choice currently there's three there's a carousel which is like a slider there's masonry which is basically a tiled gallery and then there's stacked now the stack gallery is something that you can do already in wordpress but this way it, with block gallery you just speed it up where there's one picture underneath another and it just goes down the page or post great way of adding lots of pictures at the same time so if you've got a, a series of images that you want to show fantastic um it is free like i say um it's definitely worth a look and there is also a pro version coming out which i'll definitely have a look at because it will offer some more settings and various other different things the next, I'll, I'll just add also as well that there's all of the links to where you can find Block Gallery, but I will add it to the podcast links so you don't have to go to the post if you don't want to. But all of the links and various other different bits and pieces are in the post, which you can find in the test strip. Um, the next post that came along was a little bit late. It was the 19th of March. And that's in the test strip blog as well and it's from the archive the first from the archive um post of the year and i started with one of my early shots from june 1991 of colwyn bay the post is called the colwyn bay print and well it's a technical milestone, really. It was the first print that actually came out the way that I wanted it to. It's all of this pre-visualisation thing that they, they teach you at art college and the way that you see an image in your mind's eye and then you deliver it to the paper, to the screen or whatever it is. And this Colwyn Bay print was the first time that I did that. I haven't actually mentioned in the post, but it was heavily influenced at the time by the independent newspaper. The photography in there at the time was superb. They actually made a point of being slightly different from a lot of the other newspapers that were around at the time by using very dramatic, impressive black and white images with uh, photos, uh, with stories and photo stories. And their magazine was absolutely fantastic for for quite a few years. Um, I remember the 50th anniversary of D-Day, they did a brilliant photography spread in the magazine of uh, Robert Kappa's D-Day pictures, which were so good that I actually cut some of them out and had them up on the wall for, for years and years. Um, certainly got my money's worth out of that magazine. But they used to do that on a regular basis, just pick a photographer and 
show his work, um, especially if it was in relation to a news event at the time, like the D-Day anniversaries. Um, so yes, The Independent was uh, a large influence on me in my early years, and you, the burning in of the sky reminded me of that. There was uh, they used to do that on a regular basis with their just make a, an obvious burn at the top which I think a lot of people probably frown on now they probably think it's a bit artificial but at the time it, it looked quite stylish and I think it still does um, I don't do it so much now I prefer a bit of detail in the sky but I actually think a burnt in sky like that is better than just having it sort of a wishy-washy grey especially if you've got no clouds because it's sunny or overcast it uh, burning the sky and just adds a little thing to the Adds a bit of balance to the, the picture. Um, yeah, at the time I was using all sorts of chemicals for processing film. I was using Patterson Aculux and Patterson Universal Developer, which you could use to uh, process film or photographic paper. It worked pretty well with both. Um, D76 out of a tin that you used to make yourself. There used to be a great little camera store in my local town. Not very big, but they used to have a small selection of chemicals. So if I needed some developer and I needed some uh, fixer, I used to be able to go in there and get it in little bottles. Fantastic time. Looking back, I didn't have any particular great knowledge of photography. It was all very experimental. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I remember once having some HP5 and I'd read that you just add a little bit of fairy liquid, a little bit of um, washing up liquid to uh, water and then you can use that basically as a uh, stopping, uh, not a stopping agent, but as a washing agent. I poured too much in and all of the HP5, some rather nice shots and I'd taken down the front at uh, Scarborough just went all crazy paving. Now I actually went and shook the film out. I wish I hadn't. I could have used it as an artistic statement. Um, but it went sort of like all crazy paving because obviously I'd used way too much. You only need a little drop. And it does the trick. It does work. But you I squirted in far too much and uh, yeah that completely ruined the film basically um, it certainly started cracking all over the place it was quite an interesting effect like I say I wish I'd have kept the uh, kept the results but I didn't I did bin them and put it down to experience um, so that was yeah quite an exciting time I don't know whether you still get the same sort of like those same sort of experiences with digital um, it's to a certain extent it's a lot easier you just need a computer and you just need a camera and there's nothing really in the middle to get in the way or to experiment with is there i suppose you can mess around with photoshop settings and various other different things but it's sort of like you know the difference between buying an album at a record shop and downloading something from itunes isn't it i mean you still get the same sort of like result but it's a different sort of process getting there uh bit soulless in a way uh, but you know digital's here to stay and you know it does have a lot of benefits as well so I shouldn't really shouldn't really complain too much but yeah the Colwyn Bay print B 
been up on the wall for 25, nearly 30 years. And it's just a reminder of those um, early days. Um, and it's still going strong, which is great. I actually printed it not in 1991, but in 1992. Uh, I got to art college by that point and uh, I just went into the dark rooms one day and actually managed to come away with a print that I really liked. I could see it coming up in the tray and I knew then that I'd got a winner. And um, yeah, ever since then it's been hung upon the wall as a reminder of those early days. So I, I, I just came up with the idea after looking at it. I just uh, turned around when I was at the computer and just looked at it and thought, I think that's going to be my first from the archive picture. So I just took a picture of the print. It's not a scan of the negative. It is an actual photograph of the print itself. Um, because I thought it's not quite the same if you take it off the negative, is it? But anyway, that's a Colwyn Bay print. And uh, it is the earliest shot on the website now. I very much doubt whether anything else will be put on there that will be earlier. But you never know. Okay, we'll go on to um, the podcast links. Just before I say that, uh, just before I start onto that, um, there will be a bonus podcast coming in April, and it's all about Larry Burroughs and the other photographers who were shot down in 1971 in a helicopter. I've been reading a book, refamiliarizing myself with a book called Lost in Laos which was written by Richard Pyle and Horst Fass, who both knew, well, they knew three out of the four photographers on board that helicopter that day. And it's a fantastic read. I, I thought I'd better familiarise myself with it, um, but I'll be just having a look at that book and just discussing a few things in it. So that will be the bonus podcast coming out probably by the middle of the month. I want to try and get that recorded next week. Right, podcast links. Now, the first one I think I've mentioned before, but I'm going to mention it again because it's just excellent photography and an excellent story. It's Gerda Taro, the first woman war photographer to die in the field. This was put on the Magnum site for International Women's Day 2019 and it just charts Tarot's remarkable career and a historic coverage of the Spanish Civil War. Fantastic set of images, fantastic story. Um, her influence on Kappa is well known and I have no doubt that if she'd have survived the Spanish Civil War, she was killed in 1937 by a runaway tank. Basically, sadly, she was crushed. Um, but yes, she. I'm sure that she would have become a founding member of the Magnum Photo Agency. I think that's probably a given. Um, he definitely, I mean, from what I've read of Robert Kappa, um, it, she was the love of his life. It wasn't only uh, photography, but, you know, it was a, a romantic uh, involvement as well and I don't think he was quite the same a lot of people who knew him said he wasn't quite the same after losing Gerda uh, she was a love of his life and maybe you could argue that a lot of the risks that he took later on was because of that um, you know if you lose 
something like that it it can change the way that you think about the world but it is a, a great read and there's some fantastic uh, images and it's nice to see her work being celebrated on the magnum side now the next link is raymond depardon um and images of 1980s glasgow another set of fantastic images from magnum's archive by one of their great photographers um French photographers work in Scotland's famously gritty metropolis captured much of what the author saw as a true spirit of the city. Glasgow has changed an awful lot since the early 1980s. Um, like a lot of UK towns at the time, it was suffering from deindustrialisation, unemployment, and there was a lot of poverty about. And um, anyway, over the years, there's been renovation of old industrial land and the docks and things. And it's a completely different city to what it was back then. But Depardon's uh, images capture a lot of that beginning of the transition um, in the 1980s when it was moving away from being an industrial city to being um, a new city. A lot of these places have to reinvent themselves and indeed I'm actually living in a town where that has happened as well um, where I lived there used to be uh, where I live sorry there used to be a huge steel plant and it closed in 1980 and a fifth of the population moved away to find work and it's really taken 35 and nearly 40 years for it to sort of redevelop the landscape and recover from that deindustrialization. It does take an awful lot of time. Um, I know there's probably an awful lot of politicians that think that it works quicker than that, but it generally does take a long time. If you think that you were, if you were 20 in 1980 and it takes 35 or 40 years for a location to recover from a major closure of an industrial, major industrial employer, um, that's the vast majority of your working life that goes. So Depardon's um, images sort of cover some of that and also give a great historical insight into what Glasgow was like in the early 80s i think my favorite shot actually is well i've got two there's they're both of them together and they're about halfway down the page the first one is a man leaning out of a tenement window and there's like a red car but all of the the wall and the the road are just sort of like great it's just this highlight of red of the car which is fantastic and then the other one is a similar sort of shot but the tenement has got four shop fronts that are all boarded up and all of the windows are smashed in the tenement building itself. Um, and there's a couple just waiting for a bus, an old couple just waiting for their bus to turn up. Fantastic set of images. And again, you know, a great use of some old Magnum uh, pictures from the archive. The next one is sort of related to some images that I came across a few podcasts ago about the Northern Ireland border and how Brexit's going to affect it. This is the Peace Wall people, uh, the youth of Belfast, 
Toby Binder has been documenting the daily life of teenagers in Belfast since the Brexit referendum, focusing on six neighbourhoods on both sides of Northern Ireland's peace walls. Northern Ireland was rather unusual in that, like Scotland, it actually voted to remain in the EU, whereas everywhere else, um, UK, the, England on a whole voted uh, to leave. Uh, as did Wales, there were a few areas, uh, mainly the cities, London, Liverpool, Newcastle, places like that, that voted to remain. But outside of that, the vast majority of people um, voted to leave. But Northern Ireland, the peace process has been wrapped up with the EU and the EU has been involved with that. And I think a lot of people are rather concerned about what sort of future Northern Ireland has got outside of the EU, border issues and all sorts of things sort of coming up and um, yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainty there. Toby Binder's pictures, some great black and white, some great portraits, definitely worth a look and um, you know, I really do like black and white still. Um, there's a lot of colour about, and I do like colour, just like the previous Glasgow pictures. They work great in colour. But certain subjects, uh, documentary-wise, I think colour can be distracting at times. Uh, people end up not looking really at the subject, but they get distracted by the colour of someone's jumper or something bright in there, and it distracts away from the subject matter, whereas Toby's... Uh, very, very stark, contrasty, powerful, dramatic black and whites and portraits just, just work beautifully. Well worth a look. I think probably my favourite image is um, the one of... There's a couple of police officers and then there's a, a, a lad sort of like... I don't know whether he's actually looking at them or looking through them at the photographer, but he's on a on a bike and it's, it's quite a, a stark image kind of reminds me of the ones that you used to see during the uh, troubles in the 70s 80s and 90s uh, hopefully we won't be going back to seeing those sort of pictures again and the final link for this podcast is uh tim hetherington's sleeping soldiers looking back at the late photographers humanizing portraits of u.s soldiers at rest during a tour in Vietnam. Fantastic set of images. I th I'm sure I've mentioned these before but I'm going to mention them again because I think it's a different approach to war photography, different approach to photographing soldiers. We're used to seeing them charging around, carrying guns and all sorts of things and seeing them asleep while they're uh, on active duty is a different sort of way of portraying them really. I'll just reach over here there is a book which actually documents Tim Hetherington staying with uh, soldiers in a remote outpost in eastern Afghanistan. It's War by Sebastian Junger. Sebastian Junger was the author of The Perfect Storm, which later became a film with uh, George Clooney and uh, a few others in. And it's a fantastic read. Um, one of the more interesting things that is mentioned in there is about how the soldiers used to like to, 
to sleep because it meant 10 hours, you know, you slept 8 hours, it was 8 hours less of your tour that you had to suffer. And yet the ironic thing is, is when they were at the outpost, they wanted to, to leave, and as soon as they left, a lot of them started dreaming about the outpost when they got back to the world, and uh, very, very odd sort of like psychological relationship with the place and the location that they'd uh, served in in eastern Afghanistan. It is a great read. That is War by Sebastian Junger. Uh, I'm sure... It's in paperback. Um, it's eight ninety nine, but I don't think I paid uh, for it. It's often it can be found sort of like in bargain bookshops, and I'm sure that you'd be able to find it on uh, Amazon or some other book selling website. That is it for this podcast. Um, all that's left to be said is there's a bonus podcast, like I said earlier coming middle of the month and then at the end of the month first week in may there will be uh the next podcast the april podcast so very many thanks for downloading this podcast and listening to it and i will be back very soon